Hi there, and welcome to BJD Talks, the official podcast of the British Journal of Dermatology. In this podcast, we aim to look beyond our published studies and explore the real-world implications of dermatology scholarship in a relaxed, accessible way. Whether you're a dermatology professor, researcher, registrar, patient, or simply a skin enthusiast, we'll hope you'll join us as we build on our world-leading research through friendly discussion. My name is Dr Johnny Guckian, and I'm a dermatology registrar in West Yorkshire, as well as the BJD's podcast associate editor. I'll be your host as we dive into issues as wide-ranging as climate dermatology, artificial intelligence, and patient and public involvement in research. Outcomes for patients are at the heart of what we do at the BJD. So we felt it important to begin our wider view of dermatology research by focusing in on our patients. The formal involvement of patients in research began at the close of the last century, and since then has become integrated into our academic practice. But what are the benefits of patient and public involvement? How does one do good PPI? And are there any potential risks, harms or challenges for patients? To answer these questions and more, I am joined by two fantastic guests. I'm delighted to first of all welcome and introduce Bernd Arendts, patient advocate at the Dutz Association for People with Atopic Dermatitis, VCME, and is also patient associate editor at the BJD. Hi, Bernd. Hi, Johnny. Thank you for having me. No problem at all. I'd also like to welcome Karen Layfield, UK Dermatology Clinical Trials Network Manager. Part of Karen's role involves coordinating patient and public involvement activities for the UK Dermatology Clinical Trials Network and the wider Centre of Evidence-Based Dermatology at the University of Nottingham. Hi, Karen. Good afternoon, Johnny. Delighted to be here. And thanks so much to both of you for coming along. So I've thrown around the term uh, PPI in this uh, episode, and uh, I think some of our listeners might be thinking I'm talking about Lansoprazole. Bernd, can you just explain to me and the listeners as to what patient and public involvement or PPI uh, in dermatology research actually means? Well, Johnny, it actually means that at all stages of research, and that's from priority setting to publications to guidelines and everything that's done in between, that patients and, 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 and the public are consulted or engaged in the whole process. And the reason is that, of course, healthcare and health research is always about patients. And patients can best explain what, they, what their unmet needs are, how they could participate best and optimum in, uh, in research, and also in drafting the study, the, the journal paper, that can be very helpful to get the patient perspective there, what is important to patients, like what does the study add? It should add something that is important to patients. And of course, those studies are going to be involved in uh, systematic reviews and guidelines. And also there it is, what are the needs in daily practice? What studies do we have? Do they mean something to patients? And what recommendations come from that in terms of benefits and harms? So it's always important to uh, involve patients at all stages. And what's also important to mention is that with patients, there can also be carers. Because, of course, in the case of children, it's the parents. But there are also people who are incredibly sick or maybe incapacitated somehow that they can't advocate for themselves. So carers are also playing a big role. So it's, it's a large concept. It's not only people who have a condition themselves. Thank you, Baron. And that's really interesting. So it's it's putting the patient at the centre, but not just the patient, um, their wider community, and making sure that there's appropriate advocacy. You, you've mentioned about the importance of patients and putting them 
at the centre of everything that we do. I wanted to get your take and your I wanted to hear more about your journey, really, um, in this because I've I've obviously introduced you as the BJD's uh, patient uh, editor. How did you get uh, involved in uh, patient and public involvement in dermatology research? Well, of course, it's important to know that um, I'm 57 and I have 57 years of severe atopic dermatitis. And I started, I think, um, 25 years ago as a patient advocate uh, in, with the Dutch Association for People with Atopic Dermatitis. Also been on the board there. And my journey uh, started in 2002 when the first guideline on atopic dermatitis in the Netherlands was being developed. And we had an eminent professor, Professor Carla Bruinsel Komen, and a lot of them, uh, a lot of people who listen will know her. She was um, the head of the Center of uh, Expertise of uh, Atopic Dermatitis in the Netherlands. And she said, we're going to do a guideline. Uh, she's going to involve dermatologists, pediatricians, general practitioners, methodologists, but also three patients. So that's where my journey started. That's also how I became a bit familiar with the methodology and the, the jargon which comes with the territory. And uh, I was fascinated, fascinated by how this process works. So she was a really an innovator and a visionary. And uh, she kept us involved until the day of today. And to see how far this went is that I've done a couple of guidelines in the Netherlands and uh, also be part of commissions of the Dutch Society of Dermatology that they made me an honorary member as a patient from a dermatology association. So it can't go that far that when you do it right and you help the patients evolve and educate them, you can come a long, long way. And I think in dermatology, they're a bit more forward than in some other areas, I think. But um, I don't know for sure. Great. Well, it's, it's good to see that dermatology is pioneering uh, in, in this area. And kind of speaking of pioneering, Karen, um, you obviously do quite a lot of work in PPI with your institutions. Can you just tell me a little bit about, a bit about um, what the DCTN and the CEBD get up to in PPI? Yeah, of course. I mean, um, I came to work at the UK DCTM back in 2007 and was really lucky, really. And uh, we're based at the Centre of Evidence-Based Dermatology with Professor Hal Williams and, and Howell is the chair of the network. And it's always just been a natural part of what we do before it became, you know, the in thing to do PPI. So, so that's great. And in the network itself, we have patients involved in our executive committee. So right in those, you know, business end, that decision making in our steering committees. So when um, trial proposals are presented very early on, we're getting PPI input right at those early stages. And at Centre for Evidence-Based Dermatology, um, to give some cohesion and community to our patient involvement work, we set up our own patient panel back in 2009. So that's been going, was 12, 12 years now, 12 to 13 years. 12 years uh, and you know and there are there are a great bunch of people about 35 people across the UK as Bent said not just patients carers as well uh, carers of small children with eczema and family members of people affected by other skin conditions as well and it's a privilege to work with patients and, and do the patient involvement thing they bring their lived perspective and that is just such an important thing to bring. And so we involve patients all the way through 
the study life cycle. I'm, I'm really speaking about this from a from a very applied health research perspective and, and that of clinical trials. So, you know, we're, we're thinking about the evidence gaps, the Cochrane systematic reviews, setting priorities, developing patient reported outcome measures for how we measure differences in studies, the, the development of the research question, the management of research itself, the getting the funding for the research, the patient perspective in simple things like, you know, in a study protocol, how many appointments a patient will come to clinic for, all those sorts of things that we as researchers and clinicians may not think of the timing of clinic appointments, reviewing literature to make sure it makes sense. Sometimes we can lose perspective of what is easy to understand as a non-scientist or someone outside the field. And then we come into the management of the studies. We have patients naturally involved in trial steering committees and those sorts of things. And then output as well, you know, reviewing the data and dissemination as well, making sure that we're not just targeting study results to the scientific community, but all users of research. Well, well, is there anything that you that you don't do, I guess? I think you've just described the entire journey of, of uh, the research process. So uh, that, that's pretty impressive. If I may, may add to that, uh, Garen, is that um, what also was done in the Center of Evidence-Based Dermatology by Hybel Williams, which is a fantastic, fantastic innovation in dermatology, was the home initiative, the harmonizing outcome measures in eczema. I think it started about 10 years ago, and it was an international effort because if you want to have a core outcome set, all researchers in all the world need to use it in order to be able to make notes to synthesize the data and, and com- compare studies and compare outcomes. And it is a, quite an undertaking, but it, it really pays off because it's a real solid core outcome set that is, uh, that, that is used all over the world. And it was also such a pleasure to do, to see that it would yield what it has yielded. You know, that, that all the studies, they are reporting the patient-oriented eczema measure. They report uh, the EV scores, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a fantastic example of how important the Center for Evidence-Based Dermatology in Nottingham has been in eczema research. It is um, no worse to describe, actually. I think it's, it's great that all of this is built on really strong foundations and values. Um, so we've already been talking about things like community and advocacy, but then also excellence and that all translates into genuine output as well. So um, I will hear from both of you if in terms of maybe some some homework that I gave you uh, <laughs> that you can tell me some, some specific examples of excellence in PPI shortly. Um, but first of all, Karen, I wanted to ask, I'm quite fascinated by the, the history that we've got with, with PPI. And I know I mentioned that it started a few years ago at the end of the 20th century, but we have come quite far, I understand. Can you tell me a little bit more about the history of PPI? I think if we think about the history of PPI, really, it's just, I think, a natural follow-on from that patient empowerment in shared healthcare decision-making. And in the UK, we're really quite advanced now, I think, in our patient and public involvement work. And there are lots of reference sources and sources of, of material that people can go to to look at that um, and, and to find out more information. I think, we, you know, if we look, maybe we look back, you know, there have been some healthcare scandals, you know, like the older hay um, retention of organs scandal. And, and then also maybe 
AIDS as well, I think, and that really, really gathered that sort of patient empowerment and patient voice together. And it's all sort of led, led on to this natural involvement of research and, and involving the patients in the research process rather than just as participants as research. It's, it's doing it with rather than to. Yeah, I think it's it's probably quite appropriate that that the um well and and telling that it, it took patience really to to lead on this initially and give the, you know our community a bit of the the kick that it needed to um uh, to really involve them appropriately um so they can meet their needs. So I guess the big question is then, um, Karen, why does PPI matter? Why do we do it? It matters on so many levels, and I think I think you can really break it down into to some sort of key areas. So you've got the methodological argument that we've already spoken about: patient and carers bringing their lived perspective, seeing things differently to researchers and clinicians, grounding the research, keeping it real. So it improves the methodology. We've got those moral and societal arguments that. Patients are key in healthcare. They're the people who receive the healthcare. So why wouldn't you involve them? And also, most of the money that is used to fund research is, if you will, our money. It's taxpayers' money. It's government money. That money comes from somewhere. And so why wouldn't you, you know, involve the people that are essentially funding the research? And if we look at it at policy point of view, policies are changing with regards to this. And this is at both ends of research. So if we think about the, the one end of research when we're getting research funding, we can't do research for nothing. <laughs> you know, um, funders are increasingly now, you know, insisting that PPI is an integral part of the research process and is integrated throughout research. Um, so, for example, the National Institute for Health Research. And also at the other end, at the publication end, if we look at the BMJ, some journals are really now pushing researchers for this. Quite a few of the BMJ journals now, you have to have a patient and public involvement statement in your methods. And, you know, increasingly other journals are following in this sort of approach as well. So I think if we look at all that, we've got the, you know, the methodology, the policy and the moral society. It's a really important thing to do. It's the right thing to do. Uh, Yeah, that's absolutely key. And I think you'll probably find that as this becomes integrated into, uh, well, increased importance with funding and disclosure with publication and output, uh, then the, the, it will all snowball even more um, because you have to change systems uh, to pioneer new movements uh, and new initiatives. It's much easier to do to, to improve systems than it is to have key individuals. Thank you so, uh, so much. That's, that's, you've got me sold. Now, when it comes to examples of this kind of work, our listeners, I'm sure, will be sat at their laptops, ready to break out some some articles, hopefully some BJD articles, um, to to, uh, to read about some good PPI. So, plug some good PPI research with me, uh, Bert. Can you tell me some examples, um, or maybe your top example of uh, great PPI involving studies? You know, Johnny, this is such a difficult question because, of course, there's so many research out there and so many publications and. I think just to start with one who, uh, who does this already for so long, and it's a, a Cochrane collaboration where, you know, where, where consumers were a mandatory part of it and where plain language summaries were mandatory. You know, that's, that's, that's uh, for instance, one thing. So all the publications from Cochrane 
you should have excellent uh, patient in, in involvement. Maybe some better than others. I mean, I co-wrote two Cochrane reviews, so they are excellent. I can tell you. <laughs> I did, for instance, uh, of course, together with um, uh, Professor Johannes Ring, a study of the burden of people with atopic dermatitis in Europe. It was published not in the BGD, but it was co-led. It was paid for by the European Patient Society. And it was co-led with me as a, one of the lead researchers. So we, you look at the outcomes differently, I think, and, uh, and the priorities are, are different. And I'm not going to say there's excellent research. It's, it's just good research where patients were involved from the beginning. And there's so many other areas. And like I said, the core outcome sets. You know, the, um, all, all the publications on home, you know, they are, they are an excellent example. I think that's, it's, it's very difficult to highlight which one are excellent examples of patient involvement because they're not easy identifiable either. I mean, if you would look at the BGD, I, I could not filter out which ones were co-written with patients. I mean, I'm just listed as an author and sometimes in more in the beginning and sometimes more at the end of the string. I mean, you have to re read the affiliation. And then understand if they are, it's, it's not, you know, it's not indicated. So I can't filter, you know, which ones were uh, done with patients and public involvement or not. So that's, that's difficult. And another thing, maybe not about a journal, but part of it is that another organization that does patients and public involvement very well is the European Medicines Agency. It was also a bit driven, I think, by the uh, HIV AIDS crisis. I mean, you do already for over 20 years. People may, might not be aware, but there are 500 uh, patients involved every year in the activities of EMA. There are two on the management board. There are people in all the committees. All the patient leaflets are being uh, checked by patients. I myself did a keynote speech Friday for EMA internally because I'm in the scientific advice working party, which means that I am advising from phase two to phase three design. And so you have influence on the protocol from industry designed studies. And actually to 20 to 50% of the advice letters from EMA have been influenced by the opinion of the patient reviewers. So it's everywhere there. I mean, it's, it's, um, what people may, might not be aware of. So sometimes we are invisible, you know, because I'm sitting at my computer for days and days to go through a difficult dossier and then come with my points, but it's there. It's not so visible maybe, but it's there. And I think that that's a great example. And of course, some of those studies are being published in, in the BGD, but you can't distinguish like, what did the patient do or not? There's only one example, if, if I may, if I may add, I mean, when I co-wrote the Cochrane review on emollients and eczema, uh, it was peer reviewed uh, by, of course, by Cochrane and it came back and it, there was a comment from professor Williams and he said. Uh, there's a particular nice sentence in the, in the implications for practice, uh, this in the sentence, was this maybe written by Bernd? So, because we know each other and that was, you know, one of the most, uh, joyous days that I ever had, I think. So it's, it's, I think it's, it's, it's more and more getting into there, but it's very difficult to, to pick them out, like which are the best. I don't know if Karen has any other striking examples. Yeah, I mean, a nice example to look at maybe would be the Highlight Vitiligo trial, which was published 
I was going to say last year, but I think it was the year before now. Now we're in 2022 in the BJD. And you'll have to actually dig a little more than the BJD publication and, and go to the funders report, the National Institute for Health Research HTA report. And I think it's chapter six in that report, which really outlines the, the PPI in that study. And it's we've talked about through the life cycle of a study and the importance of that. And I think this study is a a great dermatology example of that. So the involvement of of patients, of course, in that Cochrane systematic review. We've we've, we've just heard Burnt say Maxine Wisson was it was was the lead author of the original Vitiligo review. If you remember, you know Maxine's a patient, and then we've got the priority setting partnership, which we're going to touch on, and the priority setting partnership for Vitiligo identified this study as a priority area. The study looked at a, a new outcome measure for the trial to look at w- whether the, the, the treatment was successful, the development of a whole new patient-reported outcome measure, the Vitiligo Noticeability Scale. Patients were involved in the, the management committees for the study and the data review, the, the you know, the images, as well as clinicians re- reviewing those images of, of whether the vitiligo was more noticeable or not. Uh, with, with that vitiligo noticeability scale, patients were involved in that work, that, that data review work as well. And in the in the dissemination of the study, so I think that would be a really good one for, for people to look at for all aspects of the study. If they want to look at some co-production work in dermatology, then there's been a, a recent paper in the past twelve months or so in BMJ Open with Fiona Cowdell as the lead author, looking at some co-production sheet work she did on eczema mind lines and how sort of patients gather all this information together around their treatments and things. Um, so that's a really good one to look at. And, and, you know, and if somebody just wants an, a general review, we've got the, you know, impact of patient and public involvement on enrollment and retention in clinical trials, big systematic review that was published in the BMJ two or th- about three years ago now. And there's, of course, there's a dedicated journal now for patient and public involvement work, which is uh, called Research Involvement and Engagement. So if, you know, you want some real niche stuff, then have a look in there. <laughs> Great. I mean, you, you both get an A star for your, for your, for your homework. Lots and lots of examples there for uh, uh, listeners to get, to get started on. And I just wanted to touch on something that you mentioned, Bert, but then also, Karen, you discussed just about that, that accessibility and clarity that patients have been involved do you, do you guys think you know, critically speaking do you think that that we in the bjd or we as the dermatology research community we should make it clearer as to the involvement of patients uh, in research and if so how do you think we can do that i'm a patient associate editor at the bjd and at the time i was was together with, with james burton we wrote an uh, editorial in the bjd about a year ago about where, where do we stand you know because we look at plain language summaries. We try to disseminate. We try to involve the patient community. Uh, it's, it's, it's also a bit about what it says is, I mean, the, the slogan from patient participation, I think from a long on, but also used by acts of AIDS activism was nothing about us without us. And, um, they were occupying, uh, pharmaceutical companies because they want to have a seat at the table. And uh, we use a bit that meta- metaphor that as patient editors, we are sitting now at the table, you know, we're not on the menu. And now we had the, we had the first course and um, we're going for the second one. And of course, we, we're finding our ways because there's no template how to do this. 
And one of the things, what, what, what we propose for in there, I mean, we have all kinds of checklists that you have to put in with, um, with your manuscript, whether there's a consort statement or Prisma checklist or strobe or all the acronyms that you have. Why not uh, have there also a box where patients involved, yes or no? And if it's no, then it's not going to be accepted. Or what the BMG does is, is state clearly how, pa- how patients and public were, were, were involved. So I think it's, uh, it's, it, it goes in steps, you know, the BGD started with it and we were trying to find our form and then it's a, a way how to, how to go forward and how to ensure maybe like with the grants uh, and, and the funds, what, um, what Karen was saying is that uh, also in the Netherlands, the fund organization requires patient participation. Otherwise, you don't get any money for research. So that drives also the patient participation. And if you would have also stricter rules in a journal that uh, the patient participation should be clear or even marked on a checklist, or maybe even, even a, a patient participation checklist, like why were they involved? I mean, that could be a waste, but you don't want to force it. It, need, it needs to grow naturally as well, because another part is, of course, when you have patient participation in like priority settings or in, in, in guidelines, it's a bit different than, for instance, what I've been doing for EMA. You have to have some skills and a bit of knowledge about methodology. And also, I, I mean, I spoke about in 2002, how the professor invited me. I've been a patient all my life. Then I was, I think, 35. And I never had the privilege of seeing such an esteemed professor in the illness that I have. And suddenly I was sitting next to her. She asked me to, uh, to call her by her first name, which I couldn't. I called her professor for 10 years before I could say Carla. So you also need a way to train patients and to be able to participate. And there is a great initiative that I want to mention here. This is the European Patient Academy. It's UPATI, E-U-P-A-T-I. They give courses, online courses. So any patient who wants to know more about uh, patient participation in research, go to UPATI. It's fantastic. Thank you. Karen, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, yeah, just to pick up on a, a couple of things Bernd said, I'll, I'll, I'll start with what he finished with, which were the training opportunities for patients. And there are lots of online opportunities as well via the National Institute for Health Research. Uh, and there's one of these um, sort of, do they call them massive online courses, MOOCs? available about you know what it what is clinical research what is research takes you through all that sort of thing so for for interested patients there are there are lots of resources and opportunities as there are you know lots of information for clinicians who want to engage more as well and and I agree entirely it's an organic evolving process I think for the dermatology publishing community and it's great to see the these steps positive steps being made and I think we've also got to recognize that it's a different process for different types of research as well and that one size isn't going to fit all in that sort of outputs and dissemination side of things I think. I'm very glad you you described the uh, massive open online um, courses because that's one of those things that's very hard to say in a Northern Irish accent MOOC uh, is what I say <laughs> so people never know what I'm talking about when I describe those MOOC um We've been talking about drivers for uh, involvement of the researchers and the journals uh, and the various systems that we're a part of. And Bernd, you touched on a kind of a, almost a carrot and a stick approach uh, involving funding and um, your paper just, just doesn't get accepted uh, if you don't involve patients. What about patients? It sounds like it's a lot of time and investment for them. What do patients get out of it? 
if it's done all right, what, what the outcome is, is better outcomes, better results, better usable information. It, it should, in the end, yield to things that matter to patients. So that's what's it for them. And if you ask people, why would you participate in, for instance, in, in drug research? A lot of people, of course, will say, I do it for myself because maybe this is an opportunity for me to get a good medicine. But a lot of people will say to advance science, you know, I do it for also not only for myself, but also for the other. There's also a moral aspect of it. And maybe this is a bit heavy uh, to say from my point of view is, um, and not only atopic dermatitis, but some other things that make, make it for me not possible to work anymore full time. That means that also changing the uh, disappointment and sadness of having a disease, you can transform into positive action and change the world by saying how you feel and how others feel, other patients like me feel, because, you know, I'm, 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 I'm embedded in my patient organization. I've spoken with the helpline with over 500 parents to adolescents to uh, the elderly. And so I have, I have a broad view and I sit there with pride that it can speak on behalf of them who can't speak at there at the table. You know, it also feels a bit like an obligation, but it also gave me, I mean, what I started in 2002 and now I lost my, my ICT career, but now I am an editor at the British journal. You know, it's, 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 it's an incredible journey that also gave me a lot of satisfaction, you know, and uh, maybe it came at the right times I, I, that I, I, that was riding on the wave of patient participation, but it's, uh, it's incredible that I lost so much actually, and I had with eczema, horrible, horrible uh, childhood and also periods in my life that I can change that around and help others and, and help and, and have a sort of a career of myself. And I don't know, but for any researcher, how it was, how it must feel when for the first time your name pops up in PubMed. Sorry, it's a bit maybe narcissistic to say so, but it's a, uh, yeah, it's special that, 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 that you can become an equal part of the research community as a whole, because you have to do it all together and that you're recognized as such and treated as such, you know, with respect and openness. And, um, like, like Iwell Williams says in, in his lectures, patients are your colleagues. They're not subjects or objects. I mean, there are your colleagues. You have to do it together. And that is an incredible payback, I think, for the efforts that I put into it. I agree. You know, I mean, everything's been said. I've worked with a lot of patients over the years now in PPI and, and that feeling that you're turning something negative into something positive really speaks volumes, I think. And that also the altruism is, is another another reason that's quite commonly given by the people I've worked with. And also learning more, finding out more how, you know, how to manage their own condition and sometimes as well cope with their condition. That's something that's often been quoted back at me. And also, it can be quite a good way. We have had some people get involved in our patient panel who've gone on to have a bit of a career change. And they've gone on and used the skills and experience they've learned through patient involvement to, say, change from working in banking to working in more a community-based organisation. And as well, if, if we're getting funding now for patients in public involvement work, we can pay patients for their time. You know, so there are some payment opportunities as well for patients to get involved. Thank you. Uh, particularly, Bernd, thank you for sharing um, your experiences uh, with us with, with regards to this. I think that was very, very powerful. And I'm hearing a lot about identity and about 
how you can kind of reaffirm or take control again of how you see yourself and your relationship with a condition that you may have. And again, belonging and being part of a community and advocating for for others. So again, coming back to the, the, the values that we talked about at the start, and um, it really does seem that you embody those. We've been talking a lot about, about jargon, um, and a few times we've mentioned priority setting partnerships or PSPs is something that, I, that I've I've come across in doing a bit of uh, work in PPI, kind of as a as a junior researcher um, myself. Karen, can you break down the mystery for us? What is a priority setting partnership, and where can our listeners go to to read more about these? Well, uh, really, a priority setting partnership is just a word for a process that brings stakeholders together that have a shared interest and concern in working together to identify and prioritise evidence uncertainties in a particular area. In dermatology, I think we've had over 10 done today now, completed, many of which have been published in the BJD. I'm sure you'll be delighted <laughs> delighted to hear, Johnny, I know that already. Um, but if people want to sort of find out more about the nuts and bolts of, of what a priority setting partnership involves, I'd recommend looking at the James Lind Alliance website because that's the organization that facilitates priority setting partnerships in the UK they're not all done in the UK anymore there are some international ones uh, in other conditions and there you will see all the lists and all the links to the relevant papers and everything and when I say they bring stakeholders together this isn't methodologists and researchers this is stakeholders as in the treatment givers the treatment recipients it really provides that that opportunity for patients and healthcare providers to shape the health research agenda together. And they are really quite, I think, powerful levers in under-researched areas. So you work together to identify, and, and the aim is that you, that you come up with this often a top 10 list of jointly agreed research priorities, which you then push out and publicise to all the community so for researchers to pick up and do studies on but also for funders as well to pick up and commission research on and where I said the levers you know I I really don't think we mentioned the highlight study already on vitiligo I'm not sure we'd have seen that study had we not done the the priority setting partnership Um, the same with the, the Theseus study that's ongoing at the moment for HS. You know, these under-researched, previously under-researched skin conditions are now getting funding because you can show to the funder that this is a research priority for everyone. You know, lichen sclerosis, we've had the SAFA study, Spranolactone for Adult Female Acne funded. And it's not just trials either. We've there was, there was a funded systematic Cochrane systematic review recently for hyperhidrosis, you know, and I, that was funded as part of, you know, the outputs from a priority setting partnership there. So, yeah, have a look at the James Lind Alliance website. Have a look at the papers in the BJD. And just to finish on this, we've got two more priority setting partnerships in skin ongoing at the moment. One on skin surgery for skin cancer and the second stage survey has just been released for that. So please do go and look at that, people. And then one on uh, treatments for pemphigus and pemphigoid as well. And the second stage survey for that will be released shortly. So again, go and have your say, say what you think are the priorities. Fantastic. So patients are really uh, helping to 
readjust and, and reshape the agenda for research, which is brilliant to see kind of from the start. And I, I would echo what Karen says in terms of checking out the James Linda Lyons website, because quite a lot of what we've talked about and the principles of what we talked about really uh, can be seen in action um, there. So my quite final question for both of you, PPI is obviously quite clearly a noble goal, and we've discussed that at length today, but what are the challenges that we face uh, in doing good PPI, how, and how might we overcome these? Barrett, maybe if I start with you. Like Karen said before, there is no templates, you know, because priority uh, setting is something different than doing a systematic review or being part of a, of a project team of a study. So you need different kind of skills at different stages. For instance, if you have a study done and you make a patient in, uh, information leaflet on a study, you're rather uh, like it read by someone who is just a patient. No, I'm not saying it in a negative way, but without the bias I already have, I call myself a deformed patient, you know, because I, I understand everything is there. You, you also need some people with a fresh look at things. So it, it needs to grow. I think it has grown enormously already. And I think that the initiatives like the, the MOOCs you were talking about or your, pay, your party, uh, or the fact that patients are getting paid so they can maybe also be employed by patient organization, it is, it, it, it is growing. The knowledge is growing. And I think you, um, what you said, I, I think it, it patient and public participation is essential, you know, and uh, we're getting there. I mean, I think the, um, there's the, the right momentum. You also see the civil society where things are changing, you know, more protests or more, more, more people want more democracy, you know, all, all kinds of things are happening there. So it's a sign of the times and it needs to, it needs to evolve and, uh, we need to partner up as equals to make that happen and to bring it to another level. And I think we already got quite far, but it needs to be more organic and self-evident that patients are always involved or asked to be involved. Sometimes it's not always possible, but at least, like I said in some lectures, as a researcher, always, always have in mind, how could I involve patients? That, that should be part of your mindset, part of your DNA. And I think also with the years going on that younger researchers are maybe more prone. I mean, th there was so much distance between patients and professors uh, 40 years ago. I mean, that, that changed enormously and now have them in, on my WhatsApp, you know, it's completely different. These relationships are not so hierarchical as they were, it's more approachable and patient organizations are quite visible. They have the knowledge that sometimes some are really very well structured. They're very good umbrella organizations, for instance, for rare diseases, urologists, for instance, is, is incredibly uh, well organized. And so it, it has to grow and the mindset has to change. And I think with every year, it's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger and, and more self-evident that patients are just part of research in every stage and, and not just a subject. Brilliant. Thank you. That, that's, uh, I mean, just the thought of having my professors on my WhatsApp um, is kind of giving me chills. So, so, <laughs> like coming under hot sweats. So I don't, I don't, I, don't uh, I can't imagine what it feels like for you. Um, but uh, that's a it's, a, it's a powerful image, uh, certainly. Um, Karen, what do you reckon are the, are the big challenges for, uh, for PPI? I think the challenge is a, a sort of multi-level, really. I think the fact that it is, you know, has been such a rapidly evolving, changing, growing field is, is a challenge in itself for, for sort of researchers coming into this and new researchers saying, God, where do I start? 
you know, where do I actually start to find out information? I mean, we're very lucky in the UK with the National Institute for Health Research, and there are some excellent guidelines on their website for both researchers and patients and carers who want to get involved in PPI. So I'd say that's a good start. Who do I involve? I'm, I'm a researcher just starting out. How do I find these patients? You, you know, that can be, these are the basic challenges, I think. Um, you can advertise. You know, there's a, a website called People in Research. You know, you've got a project, stick the details on there and ask around locally as well. But if we look at the bigger challenges, it can be diversity, I think, is a huge challenge in patient and public involvement in research. And we need to we need to encourage more diversity because research needs to be for all patients who are affected. And we need to think about our patient populations in research. And I mean, there's been a new directive recently from the New England Journal of Medicine, of course, addressing exactly that, that now when studies are reported in that journal, they want evidence of representativeness of study group of your um, trial population. So if we want representation in a study, we need representation in our PPI. If a patient going into a study is going to read a patient information leaflet that says, blah, blah, you will be, you know, maybe considered, is your skin red and inflamed? Well, if your skin doesn't look red when it's inflamed, how are you going to feel that that study is for you? So I think diversity is really key. And I think we've talked about funding and how it's great we're now getting funding through for, for PPI, but it's that challenge for before the studies are funded. What do we do then to, to try and help compensate people for the time? And also the structures we have in our institutions to sort of administer these payments for people once the studies are funded. We, we need to make that easy for people because sometimes it's not and I think that can put people off as well capacity building we've spoken about with all the you know the training opportunities and things like that that are available yeah I mean I think that's plenty to be going let, let's not put everybody off with with, with, with even more <laughs> no but I'm um, honestly I think I think too many challenges Never too many challenges. I think I think uh, the dermatology community is ready to take on anything. I think I was really quite taken by um, particularly what you said about diversity and that relationship with representation and representativeness. Um, and that's something that the dermatology community is waking up a bit more to now more generally in academia. And it's something that does matter to the BJD. And this is one of the benefits of having these podcasts uh, and that we are aiming to discuss concepts rather than just the the kind of the purity of uh, the academia uh, within the research study uh, and one of our episodes that's going to be upcoming is going to be specifically on uh, diversity and, and inclusion in dermatology research we can't go into it now in, in significant detail uh, because that's such a massive topic but uh, I recently wrote a an editorial for the BJD uh, in one of the most recent issues just saying that dermatology is finally talking about race and this is an area which demonstrates how it's not just a case of making tokenistic gestures to say oh we recognize that we have to meet all skin types or skin tones and all different types of people well actually we need to massively change our systems and you can't do that without good PPI so this is not only are patients at the centre of what we do, but PPI should be at the centre of all the research that we do. 
Exactly, Johnny. We did an initiative recently to celebrate International Clinical Trials Day. And who even knew there was such a thing? But there is, and it's around the 20th of May every year. Uh, and we did it on a, a survey to go out to patients, well, not, not the patient community, the world in general, on, on, you know, how do you describe your skin? What words mm. do you use? What language do you use? Yeah. We got in, uh, so hopefully you'll be seeing that come out soon, being published from the CBD. I keep an eye out for that. And I, and I know to bring a kick in to work um, on on uh, International Clinical Trials Day. Well, on, on that, that happy and uplifting note, I think we'll we'll uh, just draw this uh, chat to, to your close and, because that really brings us to the end of the episode. And we've covered the, the history and the meaning behind patient and uh, public involvement in research. And we've pointed out where uh, you as a listener, as a researcher or a patient can really get started. And hopefully we've got you all uh, sold on, on the values of community, advocacy, excellence and more to get you started on good patient and public involvement. Well, we look forward to sharing our next episode of BJD Talks. And in the meantime, please do let us know if there's any hot topics in dermatology that you reckon we should discuss. You can reach us via at brjdermatol on Twitter uh, and at brjdermatology on Instagram or by using the hashtag, hashtag BJD Talks. Uh, I just want to thank both my guests here today, Karen Layfield and Bertner Rents. It's been a pleasure to speak to you both. Thank you for giving uh, us the time and bye for now. Mm-hmm.